Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. But I want to share with you this morning, the title of my message today is Household of Faith. I'm going to start in Galatians chapter 10. This is where we get this title. It says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're going to spend most of this morning in Ephesians chapter four and five, and we'll start here in verse 21 of Ephesians five, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Can we pray this morning? Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your presence that's here. God, that's so evidently felt. And Father, as we've gathered in your name, we ask that you would now speak to us through your word. Lord Jesus, our hearts are open now before you. And we're inviting you to transform us from the inside through your word. God, we know we need to think like you. God, we need to be renovated to be like you. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to apply your word. We give ourselves to you today again in Jesus' name. Speak, speak to us today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is, we're starting to get into family time, right? I know of Thanksgiving and Christmas, it's like we're headed into family seasons. And I was, uh, I had a big week this week. My family, you met them last week, my sister and her husband from Peru and all their kids were in town. And so we were hosting. And for most of them, it was their first time in DC. And so, um, we did the whole DC thing, right? They wanted to go down and see the mall. So we visited the, the Lincoln Memorial and it's just, wow. And you know, you go see the Washington Monument and it's just, wow, right? And then next thing, right, you, you go see the White House. Now I haven't lived in DC that long yet, but all of you all who are sort of DC natives, I think you know how this works, right? You go and stand in front of the White House and what, what do they say? It's so small. <laughs> everybody. That's literally been the first response of everyone that I've seen who walked up to it. So my nephew says it right away. He's like, oh my gosh, I expected it to be bigger. I thought it would be like this palatial, elegant, massive thing, right? But it's, it's not that impressive. And so then he walks down the sidewalk and I said, well, everyone says that as he walks down the sidewalk, he came back and he said, well, I didn't know I was so predictable. I literally heard five people just say the exact same thing. And we come, it's like that, right? You come with expectations for what something is going to be about. And I think this is kind of like family life. And especially if you're a single person today, we come with these big expectations about what marriage and family is going to be like, right? And then you come in and you live with the reality of the person that you have married. And we've got this fantasy about what it's going to be like, whether you marry, whether you had like the Disney princess sort of fantasy, or whether you had an arranged marriage, you had an expectation, but we live with who they really are and their brokenness and their flaws and their strengths. Everything about them may or may not be what we expected. And now we have to navigate through how we live together. So I married in Pastor John what I thought was this amazing gourmet chef, right? He was a chef before he was in ministry. So naturally, naturally you would expect you're going to get all kinds of like very fancy meals made for you. 
Well, let me tell you, that's not how that has worked out for me. But we all come like that into marriage with expectations and we have to navigate the realities. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter four and chapter five to understand some things about how to live as a Christian family, how to live in a Christian household, both the household of faith that we're part of, the larger family we're part of and our individual families. This passage here in Ephesians five, we're going to focus a lot of our attention on is called the household codes. Now, Paul was updating something that was going on in Greco-Roman culture in the ancient first century world. And this is now a Christian version of something that already existed. And this was called this Latin word paterfamilias. And it just literally means dad is the head of the house. And this paterfamilia system was supported by a law that was called patria potestas. Again, Latin word, it means dad has the power. That's literally what that means. And it, it literally meant if dad was the king of his castle in every way imaginable. So it meant he had 100% control over all the finances, all the assets that went into that. He could choose the spouses for his children. And if he didn't like them, he could make them divorce. He, he could legally disown his child. If he decided he didn't like what was happening there, he could sell his child into slavery legally. He could beat his child. He could imprison his child or force his child to work. He could even kill his child and have no legal consequences, even an adult child that had displeased him. It was a common practice for Romans to do what was called exposing their child. This is kind of a sanitized word, but it literally meant they would take an infant, usually an infant daughter, and leave them outside when they were freshly born out in the street to die. And they would just, they'd be left there. This was a legal and common practice. Actually, one of the, the, the markers of early Christians is they used to go and rescue those children that had been left to be exposed. But a man could do this. He could, a man could kill his daughter if he found out that she had had unmarried sex. Legally, he had permission to do this. He could kill his wife if she displeased him. He could abuse his wife. Now, not all fathers were like this. But the Patria Potestas law gave him permission to do anything he wanted in his house. It was his legal domain. There's a record of a man whose name was Ignatius Messinius. And this historical record says that he clubbed his wife to death for drinking too much wine. And not only did he not face no legal consequences for this, but it says that people actually thought that was what should have happened. It was considered the appropriate punishment for that behavior. And we even see this in the church, in the early church. They were, they were struggling with this. In the fourth century, the early church father, Augustine, he was raised by a Christian mother. And he talks about his Christian mother who being regularly beaten by her husband. And she compared her status as a wife to that of a slave. And Augustine commented that women were commonly, they wore the scars of beatings on their faces. You know, if they criticize their, their husbands, that was what happened is they got beaten. And in Roman society, 
men could commit infidelity openly and they expected their wives to just accept this. It was part of the culture. There was even advice columns like Dear Abby that gave married men tips on how to seduce a new, a new woman. Prostitution was common. And a man was only considered to be in error if he slept with somebody else's wife. You see, affection was not the center of a husband-wife or a parent-child relationship. A Roman marriage was just a coming together of lives. It was not romantic. And the way this happened was through a dowry. Some of you may come from cultures that are familiar with dowries, but a dowry was a sum of money that was paid by the bride's family to the husband. And this created a legal arrangement there. So it ensured that a bride would be taken care of. So if that man left his wife, he had to pay the dowry back. If he mistreated his wife, the family could make him pay that dowry back. So there had to be a financial incentive to force any kind of power into wives in this marriage. The goal was just harmony. It wasn't passion. And the purpose of marriage was to produce an heir. So strict discipline was expected. Women were pretty much uneducated, completely dependent on their fathers and their husbands, expected to manage their households. So here's what I want us to do. As we read Ephesians 5 together, let's take off the 21st century lens that we tend to read things through, our own cultural lens, our own cultural viewpoint, and let's put on the first century lens and listen to it the way that the first century hearers who first heard this passage that Paul was talking to would have heard it and understood it. This was the system. This was the culture. This is the way, the framework for how things were set up. Because here's what I want you to see. This passage is a revision of those Roman codes, these Roman culture codes that were, that were put in. And Paul's saying, this is now the Christian way to live. And I want you to see how far Paul's actually pushing the norms in that day. Because Christianity lifted the status of women in a very remarkable way. So let's start here in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now, as you read this, there's something you need to know here. These two verses are so grammatically connected in the original Greek that verse 22 is dependent on verse 21. In the original Greek text, the word that verb submit actually only appears in verse 21. It doesn't appear in verse 22. So if we were literally translating the Greek word for word, this is how this would read. It would say submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your husbands. So you see, you absolutely cannot understand verse 22 without first reading verse 21. These two verses go together. So it can't mean husbands dominate your wives. That's not what this is saying here. You see, this is not a description of some kind of hierarchy where husbands lord over their wives or even where wives lord over their husbands. This is describing in this passage a loving yielding to each other. Can you imagine how that must have ruffled some feathers in that Greco-Roman society? But Paul is setting up something where he's saying in a Christian marriage, Christ is the leader. Christ is the head. You see, mutual submission is a gift 
that we give each other. It can't be forced. It can't be demanded. It's a gift that we give to lovingly yield. Let's keep reading. In verse 23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And you might have heard me say that, read that and said, well, that seems to imply some hierarchy there. What about that word headship? Now, that, that original Greek word that is translated headship here is kephale. And this is a unique word. It's an unusual word. It actually only appears in two places in the New Testament. And it has several meanings. One of the meanings of kephale is source of life. Now, I want us to look at this again, because I think that when Paul, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. Now it's describing how Christ is the head of the church. He says, as its savior or as the source of life in this. Now, you see, when we go back to the very, very beginning, Genesis 3.16 describes what happened as a result of the curse of sin. When, when Adam and Eve sinned and sin entered, there was a curse that fell on them. And, and as a result of sin, it says that men ruled over women. It doesn't say because of righteousness that men ruled over women, but as a result of sin. All right, if you're not convinced yet, let's look at the other passage about headship in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. It explains that the head of every woman is man, but it goes on to say in verse 10, it says a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. You see, Paul sets up this, this brand new way of thinking about that. He's saying it's a threefold strand. It's a cord that gets strengthened because men and women are designed to be independent, interdependent. They're designed to be partners together with Christ. That's how we're supposed to work. And then Paul explains what this looks like. He explains what headship looks like for husbands in verse 25 of Ephesians 5. He said, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now I want you to remember what I just said about Roman society and think about how that would have fallen on the ears of those first century hearers. It's vastly different from that patria potestas law, isn't it? See, Paul's command is husbands love your wives in an era of arranged marriages. When you had to have a dowry to ensure that a husband was even going to stay around, he said, husbands love your wives. You know, men had this cultural pressure to be aggressive and dominant. This is what it was to be manly. But Paul was giving them permission to let some of that go and say, hey, love your wives. This is the, this is the better way to do it. Now, Paul describes what the headship of the church, of, of Christ over the church looks to. 
how Jesus loves and serves the church. In Philippians 2 and verse 5, if, if you want to flip over there, he talks about what Christ's example to us is that we should follow in how we relate to each other. It says that Jesus left his position of power in heaven. It says he literally emptied himself. He emptied himself of his power, of his authority. And he took this frail, fragile form in this human baby in, in a little village uh, underneath parents. He let all that go. It says he took on the position of a servant. And you see that all through his life, right? He was feeding the poor. He was washing feet. He was caring for the sick. And he even taught us, he said, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. There was an old Sunday school song they used to sing when I was a kid. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. I don't know if you heard that song before, but this is Jesus's model. This is how he leads us is through serving. And then he even died experiencing torture on our behalf. And this is the call that Paul says, this is how your, 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 you had your family, husbands, fathers is to love them, to give yourself up to them, even to die for them. It's an incredibly high ask in this culture. It is as worth a clap. It's incredible. What happened to society as a result of that? You see, it's not about jostling for status or for equal rights or getting more power. This is a call to give up power on both sides, to give up the rights of that patria potestas law, to submit to each other. And submission is not domineering. Submission is a loving surrender. It's a yielding. I think most of you who are married in this place, you know, if you dominate your spouse and you force your opinion on them at every single argument, or if you try to keep them away from the finances, probably guess what? You're not going to have a very happy spouse. That's what's going to happen at the end of that. And if your spouse isn't happy, you're not happy. That's the way it is. You know, when I was in Chicago a couple of years ago, I saw this woman out on the street and she had her pet cat with her on a leash. And she was trying to take her cat for a walk. And I'm, I'm walking to the grocery store and I walk past her. And this cat is literally just like sitting on the sidewalk. And she's like tugging on the leash. Come on, sweetie, let's go. Let's go. And the cat's just looking at her. What do you, what do you, what are you trying to do here? I, when I walk past, uh, I, probably 45 minutes later on my way home after the grocery store, she's still there. Now the cat's like in the windowsill and she's sitting there tugging on the leash and that's what it's like, I think, in marriage. When we try to lead each other around, it's like you just get frustrated because it goes nowhere. It just, it, just produces, it just produces chaos. Now, here's the thing. Marriage is not for your happiness. Marriage is for your holiness. We're called to let ourselves go, to defer to each other, to serve each other. And it's not easy, but it makes us like Jesus when we do that. You know, for all the wives in the room, if you were hoping I was going to give you the free pass and no, we don't have to submit. That's not what this is about. Because we are called to serve, to submit, to let go. This isn't about getting more power. This is about giving up power. But the standard here is that we're both called to do it. To submit to each other as we submit to Christ. And you know what, this doesn't mean that we're going to wear rose-colored glasses or just ignore the problems or not have the hard conversations that come up. 
But it means that when we do, we need to have those hard conversations, but how we approach them really matters. How, how we come in to disagreements really matters. It, it, we need to come with an attitude that's more ready to listen than we are to speak. And so often we're like preparing what we're going to say while the other person's talking. We're like putting our ammo, getting ready to like let fire, but we got to let that go. Fighting fair means that you're speaking with respect and with care, that you're guarding against hurtful words. You know, there's a thing called fighting unfair in the therapy world. And fighting unfair is when you bring up all the past things from like 10 years ago that have literally already been dealt with and forgiven and made, made accountable for, but you bring them back up and it's like, this is still a problem now. And now we're not just talking about the thing. We're talking about all these other things that used to be a problem too, but we got to let that go. We got to let the past go. Ruth Graham, the daughter of Billy Graham, she says, a good marriage is the union of two forgivers. You know what? Yes. Forgiveness doesn't free the offender from the penalty of the past. You're not giving them a free pass, but it's freeing you. You know, there's an old American saying that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. We're the one who gets the most hurt by holding on to the past, holding on to unforgiveness. And we can't weaponize affection as a means of controlling our spouse, withholding. Paul says in a marriage, we have authority over each other's bodies. First Corinthians seven, verse two. This will wake some of you up. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to the husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields to his wife. Some of you husbands who were mad at me a minute ago are like, you're with me now. See, this is the biblical framework for how our sexuality is supposed to be expressed in a healthy way inside a marriage between a man and a wife. See, here's the thing. Sex is not just about pleasure. It's not just about childbearing, but it bonds us together. It has an important physiological function in a marriage. You see, there's two hormones that are released during sex. One is dopamine. That's the pleasure center. And the second one is oxytocin. Now, the hormone oxytocin is also released when a woman gives birth to a child or when she's nursing a child, and it does a powerful bond between a mother and her child. But it's that same thing that is released in our bodies during sex. It's that thing that keeps a man and a wife attracted to each other for 50 years. When the surprises are long gone, it keeps that attraction there. You know, scientists have tracked that this bond gets stronger the more sex that couples have over the, over the years. It produces tolerance between a husband and a wife for each other. And it's interesting. It's not just released in our brain. It's released in our heart. And here's the thing. 
Unmarried sex bonds us to people just the same way married sex does. But casual sex, when, when you're going from person to person and thinking this is just casual, thinking this is just, this is nothing. It's actually bonding us to all of those people producing heartbreak along the way. And there's a constant feeling of unfulfillment and dissatisfaction, always looking but never finding that fulfillment of that bond because it's found in a marital covenant over a long time. That's how this happens. See, God wants married couples to give themselves to each other fully. It's God's design for both reproducing families and keeping families together. But he's also saying here that there's equal power in the bedroom, equal status. He's calling us to yield to each other's needs, to yield to each other in love. You know, I hear the phrase body autonomy out there these days. But this is what Jesus said. This is what God said in the Bible is that we're to yield our bodies to each other in a married covenant, to yield our wills, to yield our independence, to yield our hearts. And this is the process of two people becoming one. And marriage isn't so that one partner can shine and the other person just supports or about one partner taking control and the other person just following. This is a process of two people coming together and becoming something brand new, something brand new together as they become one. All right. So I've talked a lot about mutual submission, right? What does that actually look like? So for Pastor John and I, this is how this works. Now we've been married for almost 17 years now. And here's the thing. We don't agree on everything. Surprise, surprise, right? But we we don't move forward on major decisions until we agree. We don't force our way. We don't force our opinion on each other. And sometimes that means things move slower than we'd like them to. But we want to make sure that we're at peace. See, now usually if one of us feels really strongly about it, or one of us is better at something, then we'll defer to each other in our strengths, or we'll defer to each other where we're passionate. But we yield to each other. We share everything. You know, we both worked for as long as we've been married and it's not like his money and my money. It's ours. We make major financial decisions together. So, and then we also share taking care of the house, taking care of our family. We each do what we do best. And in different seasons, sometimes those roles shift. You know, if I'm really busy, he'll pick up more. If he's really busy, I'll pick up more and we don't worry about it. We just, we're in it together. And so, for example, uh, sometimes I do his laundry. Most of the time he does his own laundry. Usually I ask him not to do my laundry because he's like the put the sweaters in the dryer guy. So he doesn't do my laundry. Not because he wouldn't do my laundry. But for this, this comes out of mutual respect and mutual love. So when we got married, John recognized that God had called me in a unique way. He believes that one of his primary responsibilities as a husband is to steward the call of God on my life. So this is meant, it is, it's a beautiful gift that he gives to me. And this is meant in different seasons, he sacrificed significantly for that call on my life. 
And in seasons, I've sacrificed significantly for the call of God that's on his life. And sometimes what that looked like for us when our kids were young in those seasons, sometimes he'd stay at home. If I had meetings at church in the nighttime, he'd stay at home with our young kids and do the homework, get the dinner ready and let me go do that. And sometimes I'd stay home and do that with the kids, the homework, all of that. And he'd go to church and take care of what he needed to do. But we believed in each other. And we were for each other. We respected what God was doing in our lives. And so we helped each other. We're interdependent, not codependent, but interdependent. We want to make each other happy and fulfilled. All right, back to Ephesians 5. So Apostle Paul's been talking about this marriage relationship, right? But now he zooms out from the marriage relationship to talk about our our larger connection to the body of Christ, how those households fit inside this household of faith. In verse 29, we'll pick this back up. It says, after all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for the body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. We're not just isolated family units that happen to sit in the same room together. We're part of something bigger than our individual families. And Jesus is calling us to, to be part of and care for that bigger thing that he's doing. So our connection to our spouse and to our children sits inside our connection to that larger family of God that we're part of. In 1 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul describes this in detail. Using this metaphor of the body, right? Christ is the head. We are the body. So he says in verse 25, he said, its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with us. Now, I don't know about anyone else besides me. I think it's a pretty common thing. Ever cut yourself badly while you were cooking before? A couple years ago for me, I cut my hand while I was uh, chopping onions. I cut it pretty badly. And uh, here's the thing. It wasn't just my hand that felt that pain. It was my whole body, right? My whole body responded. So my heart started immediately beating faster. And, you know, I started breathing harder. My lungs and my diaphragm started working as adrenaline was released through my body and my feet got involved. They went over to go find a towel, something to bind up my hand with. And then this other hand grabbed that towel and just wrapped it up and held it tight. And then for a while, I couldn't do anything with that injured hand. And my other hand was compensating for it. Now, this is the way it's meant to work inside the body of Christ and in our families. When someone's injured, we should all feel that pain. We should all rush in to care, rush in to help each other. But can you imagine what would have happened if I just ignored that cut in my hand, just like dripping blood? Okay, who knows? I mean, it was a pretty bad cut. I doubt I would have like bled out and died, but who knows, right? It's bad enough, maybe infection potentially. It's, it's something that we've got to make sure we're paying attention to in our home. When my husband's been hurt, I get the chance to take care of him in the way that we vow, right? In sickness and health for richer, for poor. You remember those vows that a lot of you took some version of those vows when you got married. When my husband's upset, I feel it too. Anyone like that? This is how I help carry his burdens. You know, there's an interesting thing. There's new research findings about the function of the heart inside our body. The heart actually can work independently of our brain. It's like it has its own brain. 
And the heart's actually sending more information to our brain than our brain is to our hearts. It's considered now to be part of the endocrine system and produces all kinds of hormones. Our hearts do. And they found there's an electromagnetic field around our heart that's the most powerful field in the, in the human body. There's one around our brains too, but the one around our heart, that electromagnetic field is the most powerful. It extends out from us three feet. It radiates around us. And these electromagnetic fields, they've discovered that they change based on our emotional state. And we can actually impact the emotional state of those who are nearby us. And we get synced up through that electromagnetic field with people that we love, people that we care about. You know, mothers, they get synced up. They found that sometimes their heartbeats get synced up with their newborn children or married people who've been married for a long time. When they sleep, their heartbeats get synced up through this electromagnetic field. And what's interesting is that our emotional state can affect that person near us because of this, this field that's around us. People who work near each other and have mutual respect for each other, they can sync up. They call it coherence is the name of this syncing. I wonder when we worship and we're in the room together, do we have coherence? I wonder if our heartbeats sync up. You know, it says in Jeremiah that God gives us a new heart. He gives us one heart, one mind. But I wonder if there's a physical aspect to that. But here's what happens is when we're synced up, the studies have shown that we can impact the emotions of someone else. So when someone else is hurting and we come alongside them with just a hug and we are bringing our calm and our peace to that person, it's catching. We actually can soothe the people near us. It's how mothers soothe their babies. We soothe each other in our, in our marriages, in our, in, our, in, our, uh, in our families. And that's the way it should work here in the body of Christ too, is that we're able to, to lift each other up, to help each other when someone's down with an encouraging word, when someone's struggling, to be able to come alongside them with a hug and just say, hey, you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. I believe God's doing something great in your life. This isn't the end. This isn't how this is going to end up for you. Better days are ahead for you. You're incredible. You're awesome. God's doing powerful things through your life and be able to encourage each other in this way. You know what? We are strongest as a couple, Pastor John and I, our family is strongest when we are faithfully connected together to the church. Here's where we get to understand our spiritual DNA and it clarifies who we are as a family. We understand we're part of this bigger thing. The Morgans are a family who serve Jesus and we serve the church because Jesus loves the church. That's who we are. That's the way this works. And this is how we grow together. Paul talked about how we should relate to each other in this way in Ephesians four, leading into this passage in verse 15, he said, instead speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ from him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And this is where Paul starts this whole conversation is by putting Christ in his rightful place as the head of it all, the head of the church. You know, I think so often in American society, 
we set our family life around so many things, vacations, school, sports, music lessons, family gatherings. And it's like church gets shuffled down into some subsidiary place in our life. But you know, Paul is saying here in a Christian family, Christ is the head. Christ and his kingdom are the center. His, his kingdom that he's building and his priorities become our priorities. And it's not like fun stuff doesn't happen too, but it all revolves around that bigger family that we know we're connected to, that we're part of, that we're responsible for. And when Christ is in his rightful spot as the head of our individual households and the head of our household of faith here, maturity follows, says love follows, health and connection follow. This is how it works. As we speak the truth and love to each other, we get healthy communication. Every part of us is designed to be connected together and held together, growing in love. So back in chapter five, this is an interesting thing here. It says now where Paul had been using the example of how Christ loved the church to explain how husbands should love their wives. Now he flips this comparison and he uses the image of a husband and wife and how they become one to describe the connection between Christ and the church in Ephesians five, verse 31. <clears throat> it says for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He makes it clear there. This is what he's talking about, Christ and the church. He's talking about Jesus becoming one flesh with the church, his bride, just how we become one flesh. And, and how this works is a mystery. He doesn't explain this to us. I don't know if he understands it all the way himself. He's saying, but this is what's actually happening. We're made one with Christ as his bride. And I know this is a hard metaphor for men in particular to wrap their heads around being the bride of Christ. But we can think about it as just attractive and pure and loving. This is what it means for us to be the bride of Christ. And here's how Paul described us earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 4. He said, there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are all one together. So for one, we got to figure out how to act like it, right? We had to create healthy connections with the people who are around us. You know, there's the family that you're born with, and then there's the family that you make, right? And we make a family here at Word of Life. It's like a crazy, big, diverse, colorful, all kinds of languages, family of faith. But we're one family here. No matter what ministry you're in, no matter what service you go to, we are one family of faith here. Galatians 3 verse 26 says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith for all of you were baptized into Christ. You've clothed yourself with Christ. So Christ becomes the center of our identity. He's the most important thing that we share. He says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All our distinctives become secondary to what keeps us together, our identity as children of God, equal status, no matter where you're from, no matter what your background is, no matter what your color is, no matter what your ethnicity is or what your language is, we're all children of God together. And can you 
imagine how radical this idea was in this era where there was slavery, was perfectly legal, women were definitely lesser, children and infants had pretty much no rights. This is a hierarchy, a, a culture with, that's full of hierarchies. And all of a sudden, Paul takes all that hierarchy, flattens it down and says, you're all one. You are all children of God together. And he takes and says, every single one of you has value. Every single one of you has worth before God. Every single one of you is precious to him. Every single one of you is called by him. Every single one of you is created for something incredible, for a unique design and a unique pur purpose. Nobody's worthless. Nobody's there just to be a support to somebody else. And you don't really matter. Everybody matters in this household of faith. And so Jesus brought them all together. That's, that's a good thing to clap for. So as we have opportunity, he said in Galatians 6, let us do good to everybody, especially to those who are part of the household of faith. That's what we belong to, the household of faith. You know, it's kind of a tricky thing, I think, sometimes figuring out how we relate to each other. How do we do good to each other inside this household? And Paul explained to his young protege, Timothy, about how to approach kingdom relationships. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 1, he said, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Older women as fathers. Older, older men as fathers, sorry. Older women as mothers. Younger men as brothers. Younger women as sisters. So here's the thing in all purity. So a healthy sibling relationship is not sexual. You know, our broken cultures are so sexualized that we don't even realize sometimes how it impacts how we view each other. And we've been trained by our culture to view each other as objects, not to think about them outside this moment or to think about them after this moment. But we've got to remind ourselves to view other Christians as members of our family, God's daughters, God's sons, worthy of respect. And this creates safety in those relationships. You see, in our churches, we have this old tradition of calling people brother or sister. But do we actually view them that way? Do we treat them that way? So brother's role is to protect, to care, to help. So if you are looking at this woman in front of you as a sister and you are their brother, you're taking on this role to promote their well-being. You can be depended on not to just take and move on. That's what being a brother is. You think about that person in front of you as a whole person that God values, that God has a plan for their future, that God has a plan for their family. And you can think about how you can honor that future. Now, if you're single today here, there's no shame on you in the body, in the Bible. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32, Paul was a single man himself. And he said, actually, single people have picked an easier way to live for Jesus. It's easier for you to be focused in your time and your attention. You can give more to God without the stresses and the obligations that come with family. So he said, I, I wish you could all be like me and, and, and do like this. You can make God's priorities yours. But, if you, but he says, if you're struggling with your passions and it's better to get married. 
So here's what you got to think about here. If you're single in this house, think about, you got to think long-term about how you engage romantic relationships. So if you're in the workplace, there's a reason why HR doesn't want you to have a romantic relationship with somebody at work, right? So it's because if it ends, it's going to get real awkward for, for, for everyone around you and you and that person. Like, how is this going to work? So when you're engaging in that here inside God's house in this body, you got to think that way too. It's like, okay, how's this going to end up? And you got to make sure that your approach is in such a way that at the end of that, you can stay in this church and they can stay in this church and the things are not going to get awkward for you guys and everybody else. And count the cost. Think that through. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything that you do flows from it. So we just got to be careful. We got to be careful with how we engage. You know, if this person isn't your future spouse, they're somebody's future spouse. So how can we honor that person? How can we treat them with respect and value? You know, if you're struggling with setting sexual boundaries, the place to start not to think about where to touch or where to look, but it's to start with how you think about people around you. We got to reframe our thinking and our conversation to treat people as family members and just be smart. You know, if you're married and you're attracted to somebody else who's not your spouse, or if you're single and you're attracted to somebody who is not, who's somebody else's spouse, you're going to start by being honest with yourself about that. And that's where you need to create some distance with some boundaries in your life. Keep, and I think smart boundaries are don't keep anything private. Don't get yourself into private text message strings or private DMs. Keep somebody else involved in the conversation. Bring someone else with you. And then guard the topics that you engage. Keep it professional. If you're at work and you're trying to like keep things platonic with somebody, just guard what you say, guard what you talk about. If you get into deep personal conversations with someone, it's probably going to go somewhere else that's even more intimate in your conversations, but keep it focused on the task. Keep it surface level. That's how you, that's how you think about putting the right kinds of boundaries in place as you're engaging as family and putting safeguards in place for our relationships with each other. And we can think about that here. We can think about that where we go into the workplace, even if we are engaging with people who aren't yet part of God's family, we can treat them as part of God's family. We can view them as, Hey, I know you're actually a child of God. You just don't know it yet. You know, Apostle Paul says we've got to be on guard for the issues that break down these family relationships. And he goes through a bunch of them in chapter four of Ephesians. And I think it actually flows in steps. So he starts here with verse 18. He says, be on guard against a hard heart. You see, we get cynical and we stop hoping for something good. We settle for coexistence, shut down our emotions, stop caring about other people. And then in verse 19, there's sensuality and impurity. You know, pornography is devastating to men. It destroys marital intimacy. And actually the studies have found that it shuts down men's sexuality in general. It's not, it's not good for us. It severely damages us. Verse 19, greed. We want more than what we have, what someone else has. Overspending. I'm behind. I got to keep up with everyone else. Theft. And verse 28, 20, 25, lying. We start lying to ourselves about the state of things, lying to others to keep up appearances. 
Verse 26 and 31, unresolved anger or rage that becomes sinful or violent or abusive. Unwholesome talk, we get into gossip and poor boundaries. So you bring your extended family way too far into your business because you're trying to find allies, someone who's going to be on your side. So you tell your best friend about your business with your husband or you tell your, your mother about your business with your wife and everyone else gets involved in things that should just be between the two of you or you start venting or exaggerating about what you don't like about people at church to blow off steam, but then your kids hear it and your kids don't want to come to church anymore. And you start wondering, why don't my kids want to come to church anymore? Well, maybe it's because of the way you're talking about everybody in your life. Immorality chapter five and verse three, slander and malice, getting revenge and doing mean things on purpose. You see how this slide that, that Paul's describing down into immorality, where it's that breakdown of the marital covenant as someone has sex with someone who's not their spouse. Yikes. Right? So reason we don't want to do this, right? This is bad. But how then should we do it? How should we approach people who are members of this family together? We got to let love lead us forward. Ephesians 4 verse 2 says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then in verse 32 of chapter four, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. See, this is God's example to us on the cross is sacrifice for each other. This is what's Submission means is sacrifice for each other. You see, love's not a feeling. Affection is a feeling. Romance is a feeling. Attraction is a feeling. Love is not a feeling. Love is an approach. And you know, society today, they give us these like romantic comedy ideas of what marriage should look like and feel like and what compatibility is like. And that perfect blends of like success and looks and money and background you know, but in reality, we grow together. We choose to love. And there's always going to be something that's not quite right about your spouse. They're human. Whether you're, no matter who it is, there's never going to be that perfect, that perfect person. But we grow together and we love together. We choose to love. Uh, there's a theologian named C.S. Lewis. Most of you, I'm sure, familiar with him. He wrote a book called The Four Loves. And in it, he differentiates between what he calls need love and gift love. Now, need love is the attitude that says, I can't live without him. I need him. But gift love is the attitude that says, I want to make him happy. I want to make him happy. And so often we bring our need love to each other in our, in our spouse relationship. And we expect you're going to be everything to me. You're going to fulfill all my needs. You're going to make me happy. You're going to do everything I need you to do. You're going to support me. And the other person is, you're going to make me happy. You're going to give me what I need. You're going to support me. And it's like, we got these two vacuums that are sucking against each other and are always dissatisfied, never filled up, never complete. But here's what God wants us to do is he wants us to bring him our need love. 
And he has a limitless supply of love. And when we're filled, when we bring him our needs and say, I need you to fill me. I need you to love me. I need you to take care of me. God loves to do that, to pour that out on us. And then we become a conduit of his love that we can now give our spouse gift love and say, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I make you, make you better? How can I, how can I be a support to you? When our love tank is filled by God, we can bring our gift love to everyone else around us. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is a very familiar passage. Paul says love is the most important thing. If we're not loving, it doesn't matter how many good works we have. It's meaningless. It means nothing without love. And he describes, the Greeks have a couple different words for love, but he describes this word agape. And that word is the, the kind of love that God has for us that he asks us to now pour out on the people around us. And he describes this love in verse four of first Corinthians 13. You can read this with me. If you want to, you know, this passage, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices at the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. You see, love is a choice and we can choose to be people who love with a relentless resolve. We can be choose to be people who love with a patient perseverance. We can choose to be people who love in truth and with trust. We can choose to be people who love with a vulnerability. That's honest. We can choose to be people who love with an open heart, believing the best about people, not distrusting. We can choose to keep giving our heart away, even when we've been hurt before. And even if we know we're going to be hurt again. We can keep loving anyways, because we know where our source of life comes from. We know where our source of love comes from because the love of Jesus was poured out for us on the cross 2000 years ago. And guess what? Every day it's a relentless, never ceasing wave of love that continues to be poured out on us again and again, no matter what we do, no matter how far we go, no matter how we disappoint him, no matter what we've said, no matter where we've been, that love keeps washing over us every day. It's always pursuing us. It's always available for us. It's always there to hold us again. Our love for others is an overflow of his love for us and it never runs out. Would you all stand with me this morning? Right where you are. If you would just reach out and grab the hand of that person who's next to you right now. And I just want to spend 60 seconds just praying for that person. I want you to thank God for them. Maybe they're your spouse. Maybe they're not. But just thank God for them because they're your part of your family. Pray for their flourishing. Pray that they would thrive in their workplace, that they would thrive in their school, in their family life, wherever they go. You know, I think as I was preparing this, I really felt like there might be some of you who are struggling a little bit right now with all of this because you've experienced some relational pain in this past season. And if, you, if you've been lonely this week, guess what? Right now, you're not alone. We're all right here with you. Jesus is with you. 
But if you're struggling with relational pain, I know what that's like. You know, I've lost a spouse to death. Pastor John's lost a spouse in divorce. I want to encourage you today. I think God has some healing he's going to do in your life. And maybe your marriage has been struggling lately. I want to encourage you. Today is the day of new beginnings. You know, it's not wise to wait until you have stage four cancer to go see a doctor. So sometimes we just need a little checkup. We just need a little repositioning, reconfiguration, recognizing our old habits. So I want to encourage you to talk to somebody. And our team has got some resources here for some therapists, some Christian therapists. It might be a good idea to just think about that. They can help us have those hard conversations, help us communicate the things that are hard to say. You know, God has relational healing for us, but we've got to engage the difficult steps to access that healing. And I think some of you too, you might have an unbelieving spouse today. We're going to just pray for that spouse. But God just wants you to keep loving them. Just keep showing them the love of Jesus today. And you know, if you've experienced a marriage ending today, you're definitely not alone. 50% of marriages in America have ended in divorce, which is incredibly painful. There's maybe nothing more painful than divorce. It's an incredibly high price to pay. And Jesus doesn't stand in judgment over you. He just doesn't want you to walk through that pain. He wants to save you from that pain. But if you're feeling alone today, Jesus is there to be your life partner, to love you and protect you and care for you and heal for you. And I just want to pray for a moment for everyone in this room before we, before we close out. Lord Jesus, I just thank you for this family, this Word of Life family, and for the families that are represented inside this big family. And God, I just pray that your healing power would flow this morning, that you would cover marriages, Lord Jesus, you would be lifted high. And as you lead, that you would bring that bond together, that threefold cord strand that's not easily broken. And Father, I just pray that the next season would be a new season, a new season of good communication, Lord Jesus, of loving each other well, of yielding to each other, caring for each other. Father, I just pray for every lonely person that you would just pour out your love on them today. God, for every hurting person, that your love would be poured out on them today. God, they'd have an overwhelming sense of your presence, that you go with us, that you're with us. In Jesus' name.